Welcome back to AvTalk. We're back. I'm Ian Pechnik, and I'm here with... Jason Rabinowitz, and welcome to episode six. Episode six. We're half a dozen episodes in, and we've had a lot of great conversations, and I feel like at least four of the six episodes have involved you either traveling or coming back from travels. And in episode six, you've just come back from Japan. How was it? I feel like I've been traveling forever. It was great, except I took the long way around. I went from Tokyo, Narita, all the way back three hours the wrong way to Taipei, had a five-hour layover, and then flew the something like 14 and a half, 15-hour flight all the way to JFK with China Airlines, which was pretty great in premium economy. So do they do... Is it the the kind of bucket recliner seats in premium economy? Yeah, it's kind of the the slidey bucket seat where the seat back is actually fixed and you kind of slide forward in place. It's not my favorite seat, but premium economy uh, eight seats across is a hell of a lot better than ten across as you'd find back in economy. And China Airlines does this fun kind of pretty unique thing. They're one of the few airlines in the world that does this. That when you fly premium economy but connect to an aircraft on another segment that doesn't have premium economy installed as it's only on the 777-300ER and I think the A350, they actually upgrade you to business class instead of downgrading you to economy. So my flight on the way in from Taipei to Narita was on an old 747, which was actually not that old by 747 standards. I think it was about 14 years old. But because I was in booked in business class, I was actually upgraded to their old and no longer sold first class. And it was 90s chic in that thing. The cabin had been very well maintained, but kind of untouched and unupgraded since probably 1995 when the plane rolled <laughs> off the line. And it was just really, really a fantastic throwback. Super comfortable, uber roomy, first class seat in 1K in the nose of 747, which is not something you're going to have around all that much longer. And this all happened because, and we talked about this last episode, this all happened because they took away the A350 that you were supposed to fly. That's right. I was I was booked on an A350 in business on that segment. And over the months that I had it booked, it got swapped out to the 747. And at first, I was pretty upset about that because I had never flown a commercial A350 flight before. But as I got closer and closer to it, I kind of got more excited that this might be one of my last flights on a 747-400 and probably my first in, in real, true international first class that wasn't like a media demo flight or something. This was a revenue ticket and I just happened to be upgraded. It was pretty fantastic. It's like a, a triple upgrade purely by accident. Yeah. They select people who are on full fare business class that they upgrade them to the old unsold first class cabin. So you can't actually book that seat. You just have to get lucky and be upgraded to it. And sure enough, I got, got lucky. So were you lucky enough to have any kings flying your flight? There were no kings on my flight. I'm not sure if Taiwan uses a king but to pull a word from Archer. But I know somewhere where you might just end up having a monarch flying your aircraft. Maybe KLM. Maybe. I mean, there. What? what's the actual name of the airline? I believe it, it's, it's the, the Royal Netherlands Airlines. If we're going to get mail because I know that's technically wrong. 
So email us at podcast at fr24.com. Yes, direct your to, mail to To Ian. complain, attention Ian, you know, and comments go to Jason because he has a, a delicate soul. That's right. But I, I feel like it would be false advertising if they didn't have a monarch flying every now and then. Exactly. A king or a queen so or a prince. For anyone who, who didn't follow this news, it came out last week from when we're recording. Turns out that the Dutch king is a pilot. And he has been for a number of years, quietly, without anyone really knowing about it, flying for KLM. Which is pretty remarkable. And and he actually flew the Fokker F-100. So it was kind of an off-brand oddball aircraft he was flying. It wasn't your run-of-the-mill 7-3 or even E-190. What surprised me is that if I'm recalling correctly, it's not a secret that he is a pilot because I've heard that he's flown – the Netherlands has a government F-100 and I believe that there's been publicity that he's flown that one before. But this is the first time that anyone really found out that he's been flying Something like the two, two flights, two trips, I guess, a month for KLM's F-100 fleet. And I actually last year flew a KLM F-100 from Hamburg to to Amsterdam. And if we had gotten on board and the captain did their their rundown of the welcome aboard, if he said, hi, I'm, I'm Captain William Alexander, I would never have known that Captain William Alexander is actually the king of the Netherlands. I would never have known. And now you have to think back and, and wonder if you were in fact – the pilot of your flight was the king. Now, that would be something. I feel cool. like I should contact Caleb's PR team and be like, hey, I know I flew a year and a half ago, but can you find out who my flight crew was? Was it the king? Was the king flying my plane? I don't know. Maybe. But I bet you can never say I was maybe on a flight where the king was the pilot. I certainly cannot. Unless he was been doing it. The last time I flew a KLM Fokker 100 was 2005. So unless he was doing it then, but I don't even think he was king. I Maybe. honestly could not tell you. It, it shows you my my knowledge of the the Dutch royal family is. How could you not know your Dutch limited. royal family history, Ian? I've really poured it all into. Have you, you know, done no research for this show? Early, <laughs> it's not specifically Dutch monarchical history, ah, but hopefully true. we have a listener who has, and they can fill us in, and we'll backfill in the next episode and let people know if they have interest in that. But moving on from our, our poor knowledge, just setting aside that the king was flying a plane, we'll move on from that. Singapore has a bunch of A380s that they're looking to get rid of. So if anyone's in the market, they're gently used and they come with the suites class. So you've already got yourself a nice plane. Does anyone have any interest in these? You should know that they are not perfect a380s. The reason Singapore is getting rid of these is because they were the first production models of the A380. They're heavier than the later productions. They're not perfect. They can't fly as far. And Singapore is replacing them with a few newer builds. I think they're getting rid of five and taking three or four to replace them. But for a long time, these A380s were, were not, they were never performing up to the promised specs. But are these the ones that have had the – they had the wings looked at and the doors looked at and I know there were a few other things that added some weight even after the fact. Yeah, these A380s have kind of had it all. These are the frames that Airbus learned all their lessons on and later improved the aircraft. But they are for sale now. A Swiss company actually is selling I think four of them 
for VVIP purposes. So not very important person, but very, very important people. They're actually looking to convert them to head of state aircraft. So if, you know, the Dutch king wants to buy a new government transport plane, I know where he can find four of them. Well, there you go. I assume that that we're talking, I mean, we're definitely in the realm of if you have to ask about the price, but have they listed a price or is it just Unsurprisingly, a price has not been listed. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... So what you're saying is we can't afford them? Probably not, even if they did list the price. But yeah, yeah, that's probably a little bit out of my reach. But I know we're looking for a new Air Force One. We need a four-engine aircraft, as is the Secret Service's rules, I believe. And really, this is the only other four-engine aircraft out there. So maybe, maybe we can buy a couple of used A380s instead of the 747-8. Now we're going to get hate mail for two things. Again, direct all hate mail to Ian. <laughs> I know that the, the A380 747 issue has been contentious one for Air Force One, but I'm pretty sure that that's been settled. But with, you know, procurement the way it is, who knows? Maybe if they get a good deal. That's right. But just so everyone knows, these 380s aren't going to another airline. So you're not going to find Singapore's first class suites popping up at Delta anytime soon. These For any number of reasons. Right. These will not be in commercial service mo- more than likely. But I think they were – the plans for these were revealed at eBase out in out – in, where in was Geneva? It? In Geneva this year. That's right. That's why a Swiss company is selling them, I guess. But it'll be interesting to see if anyone does over time pick these up. I mean, they may very well end up out in the Mojave. Now, wouldn't that be something? That would be something. Just having a, a – what is it? About – 10-year-old aircraft now, yeah. an A380 hanging out in the desert, no engines. That would be sad. Yeah. I mean, but uh, yeah, well. But you know what? Brand new 747-8s go straight from the production line to the Mojave. So why not? Yeah, for someone to eventually not buy them. I'm, I'm using storage there loosely. Yes, storage, long-term, somewhat permanent. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're actually going to travel back in time to talk to you and John Walton who is Runway Girl's deputy editor from Japan. And we're going to learn about you guys visited the MRJ offices. And we're also going to talk a little bit about what makes Japanese aviation a little bit different. So we'll be back after a quick break from Japan. And we're back. We've officially sent Jason to Japan, where he's met up with John Walton, Runway Girl Network's deputy editor and international aviation journalist. You can find him on Twitter at thatjohn, J-O-H-N. And they've been traveling around Japan and today visited Mitsubishi to get an update on the MRJ program. So, John, welcome to the program. And Thank you. Tell us what's going on with the Mitsubishi MRJ. So we took a quick trip out to Nagoya Airfield, not to be confused with NGO, which is the new Nagoya regional international airport we had to take a bus to get there we did we absolutely did a uh, bus a, a, yeah a, a hilarious bus which had not only regular seats but full down seats in the aisle in true hilarity sort of japanese tour guide style ian there's only one airline that operates out of this airport can you guess who it is i'm going to say that it's fuji dream you'd be right you are correct. yes yeah and not only that, but there is a gift shop at the airport and you can buy one of every single color of Fuji Dream's 
Embraer E-170 aircraft. And they have got the green one. Yeah. I, unsurprisingly to anyone who follows me on Twitter, I have the purple one <laughs> in both model and plush form. We'll have to put a photo of John in the show notes and that will be self-explanatory. <laughs> right. So yeah, so we popped up to Nagoya Airfield and MRJ is in the same building as the terminal. That's where the offices are. Their production is in a rather shiny new hangar literally across the street from the parking garage. It's kind of funny. If you go in one door, it is literally the entrance to the check-in counters. Ten feet down to the left is the entrance to the MRJ World headquarters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's pretty funny that on the way back, the bus crosses this, basically it's like a level crossing, but for planes. And I guess they just roll the planes out from the MRJ hangar and across the road. Right where the buses go, they, yeah. stop, they must stop the buses, I assume. And Who gets the right of way? Off. A bus or an airplane? An airplane always gets the right of way, Jason. Mm. You should know that. Goodness. So yeah, so we had a great time. And, you know, we learned a lot about the MRJ. That's a, the small 70 to 90 seat, roughly, Japanese regional jet that is, it has recently been delayed until 2020, but should be winging its way around the world from then. Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting moment for us to get into MRJ and have a briefing with some of their executives and engineers as they have typically been a bit more of a closed off organization. But they were very, very welcoming, accepting. They let us ask pretty much any question we want. And it was just good to get an update. We saw the same cabin mock-up that I saw way back at the Paris Air Show in 2013. Not much has changed in that respect for the cabin, right? But what, John, why don't you tell us a little about the cabin and what sets it apart, if, if anything? Yeah, so, you know, listeners may hear regional jet and think, you know, tiny tube, uncomfortable world, no room for overhead bin space. You know, you've got to lean in slightly from the from the side. The MRJ is much more similar to one of the Embraer jets that you might be flying on you know, one of the shuttle services in the States or out of London City if you're in, in the UK or, or, or around Europe. It's a 2-2 configuration in economy, and it's a fairly nice wide 2-2. Again, like the Embraer, but just that little bit wider, a little bit little bit taller. It reminds me a lot of the seats you see on the C-Series, except a 2-2 instead of 3-2. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super comfortable. Got nice big windows. They've done a lot of design around making sure that it's just the right size for people and for the good old 22-inch rollerboard bag. That's something that has always been tricky to to manage to stash in, in a regional jet's overheads. So, you know, good news if you're a, a regional jet flyer. So good news for regional jet flyers but it's not all good news and roses and, and happy thoughts coming out of MRJ, is it? No, the program is the, I would say, probably about 10 years old in terms of when you, you start you know, officially birthing a program. And it does keep getting delayed. I mean, this is the first modern jet, commercial jet, that Japan has ever built. And while there is a lot of expertise in aerospace, I mean, Japan builds a significant part of the 787, it's built a significant part of the the 777, it's never produced its own domestic aircraft, commercially speaking, in in the modern age. So there have been some issues around the aircraft being overweight, which is a problem, particularly in the US, where the majority of its orders are, because of something called the scope clause. Yeah, the scope clause is a negotiation between an airline and its mainline pilots dictating how many passengers a regional jet-operated aircraft can carry or also the weight. And in this case, the MRJ is a bit heavy. They can only fly these things if they are under, I believe, 86,000 pounds maximum takeoff weight. 
and the MRJ is unfortunately above that. And that's the MRJ90, which that's is the right. 90-seater, and that's the one that they're testing out of Moses Lake in Washington right now. And that is a problem because every single order, Wikipedia, sorry for using Wikipedia, but that says all 243 orders are for the 90. And a huge bulk of them are U.S. regional airlines, uh, 50 for Transstates, 100 for SkyWest, well, 20 for Eastern Airlines, but that ain't never going to happen. Um, <laughs> only 15 of these are going to ANA and 32 for JAL. And the bulk of these are designed or are destined rather for regional carriers in the U.S. who can't fly the damn thing. Right. Well, so what, what that, I, I guess what it really means is that Mitsubishi has, in its planning and in its sales numbers, said that it's going to be sending these larger 90-seaters, and the larger one is slightly more expensive than the smaller one. Now, I think what it would like to do, and I think what these airlines would like, is for Mitsubishi somehow to get the weight down enough for the, the MIJ-90 that it would fit in the scope clause. But... You know, that's that's a big ask, I think, at this point. It seems like the primary plan right now is to get these orders converted from the MRJ-90 to the 70. And I have a feeling the U.S. airlines are not going to bite on that. Yeah. I mean, while there is a, a reasonable market for these 70-seater jets flying at the moment, I think that by the time, you know, five or six years come around when these jets start being delivered – people are going to be wanting not 70-seaters, but 80-seaters and, and those 90-seaters that they ordered. And Mitsubishi pointed it out themselves that Embraer is not producing, at least right now, an E2 version of the E170. Yeah, just the 175, the 190, and the 195 for the E2 generation. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, a bit of a tense period, I think, for Mitsubishi. You know, they, they had a bit of executive change you know, they, they, a bunch of people retired or were retired, depending on who you ask. And, you know, it's really interesting to see how, you know, they've, they've been bringing in a lot of international help in particular to try and, to try and really get this program back on track. Because, and the thing is, I really like the program. I think it's a great little aircraft. You know, it's, it's a comfortable aircraft, which is something that as a passenger experience journalist, I'm always in favor of. And I think it'll do a lot around efficiency in particular, you know, fuel efficiency, which means that some of these long and thin routes might actually become profitable, you know, or be profitable to start again. Yeah. So, so, if- so I, that, that's something that I'd like to discuss for a moment. I mean, setting aside yeah. the scope clause issues, because eventually that will have to get figured out somehow, whether that's by the airframer or by the airlines revisiting their scope clauses, which is probably a very large ask. But but what is the MRJ? I mean, given the amount of orders from the US, what is the MRJ designed to do? Which aircraft is it designed to replace? And, and what routes is it designed to either replace or or is it an aircraft that airlines are looking to start new with? So it's largely expected to replace that 70-seater regional jet market, right? So that's things like the shorter distances between, you know, Boston, New York, Washington, LA, San Francisco, and then smaller routes out of Seattle. So Alaska's subsidiary Horizon and Contract Flyer Sky West, they use that a lot out of of Seattle for some of those smaller routes. The nice thing is that it's a jet, so it's you know, a little bit faster. I'm appearing at the specifications page here. 
So in the, in the MRG90 variant, uh, it comes in three flavours, standard, ER and LR, for extended and long range. So you're looking at, in nautical miles, let's say, the standard 1150 for the ER 1550 and the LR 2040. And that flies 88 passengers in a single class at 31 inches of pitch. And then you start, you know, taking out about, if you take out eight economy seats, you get about six or so first class seats to put in there as well. So right now, the time frame for the MRJ90 is a 2020 first delivery and entry into service. The MRJ70 right now, I believe the first aircraft is, the first 70 is actually on the line now. Yeah, I think it's being built. Yeah, fuselage assembly is now underway for the MRJ-70. That will be flying in 2021, and the larger double stretch, I guess, or actually the stretch of it, mm-hmm. the MRJ-100, is still hypothetical at this point? Yeah, yeah, it's still in sort of little dotted lines on the family picture there. So the rustling you can hear is Jason pulling out the latest edition of the MRJ newsletter. Yes, very good stuff from uh, pictures of the cold soak test, the hot soak test. And they're actually, they have a small fleet of these out in Moses Lake in eastern Washington State is where they're doing the testing for the yeah. MRJ, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it means that one of the benefits of doing it in the US is that you have access to both very cold and very hot and humid and very hot and high, which is a phrase long-time listeners may be, may be, may be used to from talking about aircraft like the 757 and the 727 even. Those you know, airports like Denver, where the air is less dense, which means that you have specific requirements for, for aircraft to be able to take off at maximum takeoff weight. So, you know, and there, there are all sorts of facilities. You know, Airbus usually flies it up to Carluit, I think, yeah. is the way that you pronounce that up in northern Canada. And there's also, if memory serves, a, basically a deep freezer somewhere in, in Florida. Florida. I think Emory yeah. Riddle in northern Florida has a, a freezer for airplanes. Yeah, and literally people will drive their airplanes into this freezer and freeze it down to minus whatever to make sure that all of the components work if they're, you know, selling it to someone who wants to operate it up in, in freezing temperatures. Stuck in cold bay. Yeah. So speaking of Japanese aviation, since obviously this is a Japanese aircraft with Japanese orders, flying in Japan, as you've done quite a bit of, is a bit different than the rest of the world, isn't it? It is. So Japan has always had these really dense, short-haul services. That, of course, comes in the context of having one of the world's best-developed long-haul high-speed rail services. And now Jason and I, while we've been on vacation this week, have been taking real advantage of, you know, to skip around the country at 320 kilometers an hour, which is what, 186? 175 Something like that, miles an hour. And the amazing thing for Japan is that you know, you watch this 1,300-passenger Shinkansen loading up. You know, this thing is 16 coaches long, loading up in Shinosaka. And you look at the timetable, and there's one every 10 minutes, and then some six minutes pass in rush hour. It is just immense, the logistics of this. So there's not, in essence, the same amount of short to medium distance domestic flying in Japanese terms as there is in other countries. So let's say in the US you had a 186-mile-an-hour train. That basically means no one would fly between Boston and Washington. If only. Right? No one would fly between LA and SF. No one would fly between the three largest cities in Texas, right? But what Japan does have is 
parts of the country that either aren't connected to the Shinkansen network, which for the most part is a big long line stretching from Kyushu in the southwest up to the southern tip of Hokkaido in the northeast. It doesn't yet reach the capital of Hokkaido, which is a city called Sapporo. Sapporo to Tokyo is the world's largest aviation market. Largest in terms of... Passengers carried per year. Wow. Yep. And they've carried passengers on that route with some of the largest density aircraft in service. So Japan used to have something called the 747-400D for domestic, which is the only 747-400 series that I'm aware of that didn't have winglets. Yeah, no winglets. Because the winglets were added weight and they didn't add that much performance. And so I want to say both JAL and ANA had those and they ordered them without winglets. They both retired them about two or three years ago. Yeah, not not a long time ago. And if if you've got a chance to take a look at jet photos, have a search for the ANA Pokemon jet. That was one of those those special liveries that was flying around Japan. We, um, we can throw that in the show notes. Superb. But what, what they use now, and what they were the first airline, if memory serves, to debut, is a bunch of Tenebrest 777s. And not even ER. 777-300 non-ER. Oh, and 777-200 non-ER, which is even more rare. You know, these are almost 20 years old. They look pretty new. And I flew up and back to from Tokyo to Sapporo on on a couple of these. Now, one of the interesting things about Japan is that they don't have economy, business, and first class domestically. Well, they do have first class, and they do have economy, but in the middle is something called Class J. Now, Class J is essentially a almost business class. But not quite. Right. So if you're a miles and points junkie, you may know that Class J will earn you business class miles and points, but it doesn't have the full business class service. So you don't get lounge on either end. There's no real meal. There's a beverage service that comes through. You also don't get a business class seat. Well, you kind of do. On so the you, 7-3, you get no. two, three economy yeah, seats. Yeah, right. So you basically get a sort of slightly nicer than an, than an MD-80 cross-section economy seat, which is perfectly comfortable, right? Yeah. I mean, the, those, those tenebrae seats are, are pretty tight, even for an hour and a half flight. And it's the same down the back of a 737, right? I mean, it's not the most spacious. But if you take one of those seats out and redistribute the, the space, it's, it's very comfy. And now on my old ex-Japan Air system, now uh, part of JAL, JAL at JAS in 2006. These are, you know, 20-year-old aircraft. Down the very back, 333. In the Class J section, it's 222. So it's kind of like a premium economy, internationally speaking. Early premium economy, right? So it's without any kind of entertainment or anything. And then up front, there is First Class, which is actually very swanky and has some unique seats, as far as I'm aware. upgraded to it, right? I did. Walk-up upgrade. Right. So, I mean, we said that Class J isn't really business class, and that's fine because it's only that sounds pretty reasonable ten dollars yeah. more than economy. So you go from ten abreast to eight abreast with a bit of extra legroom and priority boarding for ten bucks, and I think that's a pretty reasonable steal. Yeah. Right. Considering that also upgrading to the green car on the Shinkansen, which is their business class car, is quite expensive. Yeah, it'll often be double the price of of a standard economy class Shinkansen ticket. But what was first class like on a domestic Japanese flight? It was truly delightful. I would highly recommend it to anyone who's who's a fan of flying and just really likes seeing how passenger service works. So you've got, I want to say there's three rows down the middle and two rows on either side. So that's 6, 12, 
13, 14 seats. And these are unique seats manufactured by Zim, who you may remember from the Lufthansa Premium Economy or Qantas Domestic 717s, smallish German seat manufacturer, although we say smallest, I believe they're number four in the world these days. And they're, they do look a little bit 1980s mafioso chic. There's a lot of white leather and a bit of brass trim. It's not quite Emirates, but it's, it is a little of a time period, yeah. shall we say. Now, it's, they're very comfortable seats. You get a, <laughs> there's, there's no in-seat power, but you do get a massive battery sitting in the seat back in front of you. And a massive battery which will power not only via USB, but actually gives 5-volt, what I assume is laptop power. Wow. Yeah, and, and I, I spotted that sitting there going, that does seem a little, a little large for 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 powering, uh, powering your, your, your phone for an hour and a half. But it, I guess it means they don't have to pull it in and out all day. I yeah, guess. exactly. So the last thing we we want to talk about, we've all heard legends of how quickly the Japanese domestic airlines can turn a four hundred seat aircraft. It's it comes insane. into the gate. 20 minutes later, it's deboarded, cleaned, catered, reboarded, already taxing out. Is it true? It's totally true. So on the first flight I took when I was in Class J and I could see you know, the full boarding process, I was just behind the second set of doors. So the so this is both Tokyo and Sapporo no Chitose International Airport, which is the main, main airport in Hokkaido. They use both doors for boarding a, a 777-200. Generally, on the way in, you get economy down the back, and then Class J and First Class at the front. And on the way out, they arrange the curtains in the galleys so that one side of the plane leaves through one door and the other side of the plane leaves through the other door. And now Japanese people tend to travel with less luggage for a number of reasons, one of which is that all across Japan there is this series of services called Takubin, which is basically like imagine you could FedEx your luggage around the country for $20, and that's basically it. And you can you know, send it from a hotel, you can send it from your office, you can send it from the convenience store down the road, you can send it from anywhere. They'll come to your house and pick it up and deliver it the next day to wherever you're going. So people don't tend to travel with the same amount of stuff, which yeah, helps. You walk into a hotel anywhere in Japan and there's just this entire row of luggage that people have forwarded to their next destination. Right. And so you especially you know when you get on the on the Shinkansen, you'll see that very few Japanese people are traveling with anything larger than a small carry-on. There's nowhere even to put luggage. On right, the train. exactly. I mean, you, you've got a small carry-on that you can put on the overhead, but there's only luggage space in the train for four passengers per car. And actually, on the on routes with a large proportion of Western travellers who don't, you know, understand that that's an option, there is still a lot of a lot of talk about. I'm taking out a couple of seats just to add some gaikokujin foreigner luggage space. Which, you know, given that, you know, people do, <laughs> it's quite funny because between Tokyo and points west, if you have a Japan Rail Pass, you can't take the very, the super, super express trains, the ones that make the fewest stops and are thus the fastest in overall time between Tokyo and, say, Nagoya, Osaka, and Fukuoka, right? And you have to take the slightly slower ones, which, you know, it takes 20 minutes longer and you're on holiday, so you don't really care. But what that does mean is that, they kind of become the Foreigner Express. If you go onto the platform at, at any of the stations for the Hikari, for example, which is the, the second fastest set of trains, and you see a whole bunch of foreign people slightly milling around as a general rule, not entirely sure how, it's all, how it all works. Did you see any foreign people on your domestic flight? Do you know, I did not. 
So and you, I was, you were I was looking at. I, I think I was probably. I was. I was probably the only, <laughs> only foreign person on the entire flight. But yeah, it was. It was a fascinating experience. Not only because there is an entirely different size of boarding pass in Japan, domestically boarding pass. Yeah. So imagine you, the boarding pass was the size of your passport. So slightly smaller than the larger bit that you tear away. Huh. But it's it was a unique size piece of paper. It wasn't like one of those supermarket receipts that you get right. from a low cost carrier. It was a piece of card with a 2D barcode on it that you sort of tapped your way in and tapped your way out on all the self-service stuff. Huh. And you know, that's one of the things that really struck me. I'm like, why well, that's that's a really interesting <laughs> idea. Why why not have that elsewhere? Right? Imagine the amount of paper that would save. Right. Well, I mean US airports were still using dot matrix printers, so Right. Oh the the, the sound of imminent departure. Yes. As, as that dot matrix starts screaming its way across the gate. Airline industry keeps that other industry alive. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well on that note, thank you, John, so much for joining us. That was that was great. Anytime. Thanks for having me. To mention again where people can find you. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at that John T H A T J O H N. You find all my writing about the passenger experience covering planes, trains, well, we don't need the automobiles, but pretty much anything at runwaygirlnetwork.com. All right. Thank you so much. John, thanks for joining us. And Jason, John, continued safe travels. And Jason, we'll talk to you soon. Yep. Cheers. Welcome back from Japan. Jason, thanks so much for taking time on your vacation to actually do some work. Yeah, it was a good chat we had with John. He's got some unique perspectives on the whole system there. And I think he might live there now or lives there just long enough not to be having to pay taxes. <laughs> well, I mean, it, he seems to really enjoy it. And he seems like the, the right person. If you're headed to Japan, you should get in contact with John if you've got any questions about either taking the train or, or an airplane. Yeah. Or, you know, recommendations on dumplings or noodles or ramen or whatever. The most important recommendations there are. Right. So we talked about the MRJ getting off the ground. And Last week, the first 737 MAX went home with Melindo Air. And so that, as we're recording, is actually they're getting ready to perform the first revenue flight. Although you could be forgiven for thinking it's Batik Air Malaysia because, well, that's what the plane is painted as. Because they're rebranding and got stuck in the middle of a rebranding is my understanding. Yeah. So unlike some other airlines you might find in North America, they actually planned ahead at the Lion Air Group. So Melindo Air, I believe in the second quarter of this year, maybe the third quarter, is rebranding from Melindo to Batik Air Malaysia. And they were smart enough to take their first max and I guess all subsequent deliveries in the new branding of the airline. So instead of taking Melindo Air for the first two months and then having to repaint the plane or keeping it in the old livery for years, they thought ahead and took it in the new livery, which is pretty smart. Yeah. So we've gotten some questions about why does it say Batik Air Malaysia if we've been saying from Melindo Air, Melindo Air. And so that's that's the reason why. And so I believe Melindo Air will remain the Airbus operator in in the Lion Air group. To be honest, not really sure. There's okay. a lot of a lot of parts and subsidiaries of the Lion Air. Group. Yeah, there's like four or five. I mean, there's one airline, but there's like four or five different, you know, sub brands and things like that, all operating. Yeah, it gets a little confusing. It's like there's, I mean, how many Air Asias at this point? If you count Air Asia X and all the subsidiaries, it's quite a few. Yeah. So we'll we'll do our best to to keep track of that. But the other important news that came out right before delivery 
of the Max, the first 737 Max, was that ICAO issued their revised type codes for the 737 Max family and the A320 NEO family. Finally. Finally, yes. Because up until now, we haven't been able to track them as a group. We've had to do it by individual registration, which has been significantly trying. But now it's super simple to track it by type. So for the Max, the only one that's been delivered so far is the Max 8. And so instead of the old type code for the 737 was B73 and then whatever version of the 737 you were looking at. So the new type codes are B3 and then the version of the Max and then M for Max. So for the 737 Max 8, it's B38M. For the 737 MAX 9, it's B39M, and the 737 MAX 7, which is still under development, B37M. If they end up developing the MAX 10, I have no idea what the code will be, but we'll figure that out when we get there. And of course, OAG uses their own codes, which makes it even more difficult to find these things when you're actually booking a flight. So OAG for the MAX uses 7M8, and I guess they'll use 7M7 for the MAX 7. So these things are still particularly troublesome to not only find on Flight Radar 24, but actually to find them, to book them. And that's if the airline's actually using these codes. Yeah. I mean, with, with the with the ICAO type codes, I mean, they're standard, but with the OAG type codes, each airline sometimes has a different code for the same plane. Yeah. It's been problematic for me at my, my day job to find these things in the schedule. With the MAX, some airlines use 320, some use 32S, some use 32T. It's difficult to find them. And I hope everyone can kind of finally get on the same page. So speaking of the 320 NEO family, that one's pretty straightforward. The type codes are just A, the number of the aircraft, and then N for NEO. So A19N for the A319 NEO, A20N and A21N. Those are pretty straightforward. And those are all ICAO type codes. So that's what we use in the aircraft filter to track the flights. So now you can track them as a group and track them together or separately. And those new type codes make things a lot easier as far as tracking the aircraft goes. But it also standardizes some things so we're not left guessing. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that it took so long to get these codes. Is the 320 NEO family has been in service for a year now? More? So rumor has it that ICAO will be updating type codes on a much more regular basis moving forward. So for things, hopefully the the COMAC C919 will get a type code soon, and all of the new Embraer aircraft, the E2 versions, will get type code soon, and so on and so forth. So hopefully we'll be seeing much quicker turnaround on those. So they're easier to track, but also the we know what they are. Yes, the aviation industry is definitely not known for its swift reaction to new things. So thankfully, we finally have some new codes. Yeah. So easier to track, and now it'll enter revenue service any minute. So right. we're going to go follow that into revenue service. We're going to go follow Melindo Airs, soon to be Batik Air Malaysia's, the first 737 MAX revenue flight. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah.